welcome to the third episode of The Right Podcast. I'm Minahil Khan. I'm a senior research fellow at the Research Society of International Law. Today I have with me Mr. Usman Mushtaq. Usman Mushtaq is an advisor to the Ministry of National Health Services Regulation and Coordination on diaspora and special projects. Usman, it's so nice to have you here. Um, thank you so much for taking out the time. And um, I believe you've been working at the ministry for about a year and a half now. And what a year it's been. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just to start off, we'd like to know about your experiences here. I also know that you're Norwegian. And uh, how has it been in Pakistan? How did you come across this opportunity? And how has it been like for you, especially during COVID-19? Wow, thank you so much, I mean, First of all, uh, thank you for, for the invitation. It's, um, it's a really uh, interesting topic that, uh, that you guys are discussing and, and, and working on. Uh, so very brief introduction. I mean, I have a, a medical background, so I'm a medical doctor and, and a degree in economics. And uh, in Norway, I've been working quite uh, over a number of years on uh, public health related issues, both on policy and politics uh, and environmental sustainability. So I've done a number of things, both nationally and, and internationally. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I had always in my back, back of my mind is, uh, even though I've never, you know, lived in Pakistan, I wanted to uh, contribute in whatever capacity that that I could, and uh, quite interestingly and and unexpectedly, um, I, I I had met with uh, Dr. Zafar Mirza, who was the previous SAPM um, on on health, uh, when I was a young intern in WHO, almost a decade ago, and you know we stayed a little bit in touch, and when he uh, was appointed to the SAPM, he um, asked me to. Uh, come and join his team and and you know initially I was just supposed to be here for a few months and then it just got extended and extended and suddenly the pandemic hit and let me tell you that changed absolutely everything and it feels like you know we started working on this uh, around mid-January mm-hmm. and it feels like it's been so many years um, and every passing month uh, you know feels like such a long time period so it's been really intense. Uh, you know, it's been a very sad moment for a lot of families that have lost their loved ones, people that have gone through tough times, uh, you know, in Pakistan and in other places around the world. Uh, you know, we all know somebody that has been impacted. Um, and uh, however, you know, the way that I like to think about this, uh, for me personally, uh, you know, it's it was a challenging time. Uh, but professionally, uh, it was a incredibly prolific time for me where, where you know, I was uh, able to contribute in ways where which I would have never thought uh, would be possible for me at this stage of my my career and my life. Oh, but that's really inspiring, um, Osman, to see that you came all the way from Norway to Pakistan to be able to contribute at a time when we really needed people from all, you know we needed experts from around the world to help us. Um, now, just moving on to like the more, um, you know, in, in relation to COVID-19 and, you know, with the emergence of diseases like, such as this and in the wake of, you know, their their impacts. Uh, RSL has been working on this for a while now and we have a report that looks at the legal framework for health security in Pakistan. And when we were going through that, we realized that, you know, the impact of a, of, of a health crisis, of, um, of a health emergency is so intense and it is so profound. And it is so important for countries to be prepared and equipped to deal with this. In your opinion, how equipped and how prepared was Pakistan in responding to the pandemic? Right. Uh, this is such an interesting question because not a lot of uh, 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 people were expecting 
um, that Pakistan would be able to grapple uh, with a disease outbreak and a pandemic of this size and this intensity, right? Um, and 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 yeah, to be frankly honest, neither did we. Because if you look at, uh, and you know, you have done some great work here. I have like this, you know, two hundred page report from you guys. This is you know really awesome work. Uh, but if you look at uh, the the precursor for the pandemic and look at you know our health security preparedness. Uh, Pakistan was evaluated fairly low uh, yeah. in the external evaluations that took yeah. place from, you know, missions that came from WHO, etc. And we had a significantly uh, 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 amount of work that we needed to do in order to strengthen our, our health security. So, so you know, in health security, it's not only the gener- general health system, which is incredibly weak in Pakistan, so the public yeah. side of things, but but also very specialized uh, elements, you know, like your, your lab capacity, the way that you handle people yeah. at point of entries, et cetera, et cetera. And there, you know, there are so many elements to this. Um, so, you know, Pakistan's uh, ability to, to, to grapple with the pandemic uh, uh, was considered to be fairly low and on the same level as lower middle income countries, right? While high income countries um, um, have fared better in these indices and evaluations yeah. that, that took place. Now, <laughs> what we saw with this pandemic was a, a complete, uh, I would say, disregard to the way that we have evaluated health security, especially and how we rank these countries. I mean, you saw that, uh, you know, politics played uh, an, an immense role yeah. in, in how the, the pandemic uh, panned out. But more than that, there were more, you know, issues than just the just the just just politics like so, so no, you know in, in any uh, evaluation that took place nobody really considered the fact that you know america would have such a dysfunctional leadership right um, um and while you know east asian countries were able to handle this so effectively and so well so we talk a lot about uh you know wuhan and where the virus came from and and when the governments uh so local authorities in 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 hubei reported it uh, but, you know, even if you consider the fact that you would have gotten a week or two weeks better preparations yeah. time, it seems like the end result, specifically in Europe and, and in Western currencies, wouldn't have changed because you had, uh, frankly speaking, uh, a, a political leadership that did not force, like did not take this seriously. Um, so for Pakistan's point of view, uh, you know, our health system is severely under resourced. Um, you know, we, we, we knew that we had a lot of gaps in our health security. So technically, we were not that well prepared. Yeah. However, uh, right before the pandemic hit, uh, at the federal level, uh, we were dealing with a significant dengue outbreak, and we had a technocrat uh, health, uh, SAPM, which is you know functioning as a health minister, and a government that focused on on health issues. And you had like significant actors within the government that were well aware of you know health related issues, like you know Dr. Sonia Nishjar, etc. So, so coming from the dengue outbreak in autumn 2019, um, uh, dealing with outbreaks were uh, quite fresh in, in, in mind. Uh, and, and I remember very clearly, you know, when we first started the briefings on COVID-19 back in 15th of Jan, actually was one of the first briefings that we had, fairly quickly we got on top of it. And much more rapidly, we managed to start developing systems on the go, systems that we did not have in place. So even though we were not, uh, you know, we were not well prepared structurally, uh, but the uh, intense focus in the initial few weeks uh, ensured that Pakistan uh, fared 
very really really well. Yeah. Um, and and we can come back to you know comparison to other countries etc. But I would I would kind of come back to the fact that you know the, those first few weeks and and months were crucial uh, in our preparedness because we were not set up to succeed. Yeah. No. I mean, even when we were undertaking this research, we I mean you know almost every uh, literature that we read um, recently indicated that you know countries that did really well on these indexes like the GHSI and the JEE did act, didn't actually do very well in practice and weren't very as equipped as you would think they would be in dealing and in controlling the pandemic and that really reflects the need to have good governance and good leadership and um i think in pakistan's case we really were it it was a good thing that we had already declared polio as an emergency because we were able to use a lot of the machinery that we had in place for polio for covid and as you mentioned for dengue which we then used for covid um but generally um in terms of the role of leadership and the role of governance um there have been issues in the past especially with relation to devolution and the fact that we didn't have a federal ministry for so many years so the ministry now is a fairly new ministry how did it deal with issues of coordination especially interprovincial coordination which we saw was an issue at the beginning um how did you know you kind of what was the pro- what were the processes that were then adopted to ensure better coordination um we saw the ncoc that was created and um and how that worked with the ndma and the ministry but could you just elaborate on that a bit more right so just just uh, one quick comment on the ministry so i mean you know having the perspective uh from the outside i mean i've i've worked uh, uh quite a lot in in norway and you know globally on 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 some of these issues and 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 it's quite fascinating you know how under resourced uh some of our uh, departments are i mean the recurrent budget so health ministry has two types of budgets one is recurrent and one is development uh, and i'm i'm sure some of your viewers or listeners would would know about this but the but the recurrent budget uh of the ministry of health uh, uh you know i'm from a local area in oslo oslo is a capital of norway 700000 people my local neighborhood has 30000 people right the recurrent budget of ministry of national health of pakistan is lower than the primary healthcare budget of the part of the town where i am from in norway right like 30000 people wow. has bigger primary healthcare budget than just gives you the you know extent of how severely under resourced um uh, uh you know health sector in pakistan has been and and the total healthcare public healthcare budget isn't really something to be glad over either so 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 the devolution played a devastating role in 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 the way that health was managed uh, uh i mean obviously the principles of devolutions were right like healthcare you know should be delivered closest to the uh, uh you know to the uh uh At a patient level yeah right right like so so all of that was correct but the the, the way that it ha- happened i mean i you know I, there are not a lot of international examples where you see overnight that ministry of health was gone pakistan was in that period i think between 2008 9 10 2010 yeah 10 to 13 yeah. was the only country in the world only country in the world that did not have a federal ministry of health now think about that so you know the un uh, world bank etc so they had to send missions to pakistan try to convince the leadership that you know for god's sake uh, you know you need to have something central on on health uh, education is you know the same issue so so basically what that did was that evaporated the institutional memory and it had to build up from from the bottom up so so the ministry uh, i mean i have 
really awesome colleagues. People are working really, really hard uh, with with you know very few resources, um, and and it has obviously for them being a, a a very severe challenge to build some of the institutional memory and some of the working capacity up again. So when COVID hit, uh, coordination among uh, provinces was a, uh, a a challenge. Uh, the precursor for the NCC, the National Coordination Council for or Coordination Committee for for COVID nineteen, was that uh, the the Ministry of Health actually took charge. Uh, we were supported by you know various entities, um, and we had a regular, I think, a weekly or a uh, weekly meeting with uh, chief ministers um, um, and health ministers. And this is now we're talking about like end Jan. And Feb, and then uh, you know when the National Security uh, Council uh, uh, happened in thirteenth of March, I think it was. Uh, uh, we advocated for that you know we needed this kind of mechanism, and and that was when the NCC was created. Yeah. So the NCC, the National Coordination Council, was the political coordination committee mm -hmm. for all things COVID related, and it was chaired by the PM himself. So the PM, all the chief ministers, relevant federal ministers, uh, you know, armed forces, etc., like everybody that was, you know, involved in the response, uh, was in the NCC. Very soon, um, uh, there was a realization that on the political level, uh, you needed still an operational arm. Yeah. So the operational arm, I mean, the Ministry of Health was, uh, you know, could have done it, but did not have the right amount of resources and not the right amount of clout within you know the, the provinces as well. So that's when the NCOC was created, like a joint civil military nerve center for COVID response led by you know very strong minister Asad Umar Saib um, and and Lieutenant General um, Hamoud uh, basically. Uh, so 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 the NCOC became then the operational arm of the political committee that the NCC was, and 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 it worked. Uh, I would say. Uh, uh, wonders uh, yeah. for for the early response and and boosting up you know Pakistan's um, um, health capacity and and also a response towards COVID nineteen. Okay, no, so that's that's good to know, and um, I think. But does it? I feel the creation of the NCOC also shows somewhat of a reactionary um, approach that the government had to take because yeah. we didn't have the machinery in place. I we do have a um, you know a national disaster management authority. We have. Um, an entire we setup for that. We have PDMAs. We yeah. have DDMAs as well. Yeah. But um, with the creation of the NCOC, I feel like we're did we not in some ways undermine the role of those statutory bodies and that entire statutory mechanism that had been created to deal with emergencies of this nature. Um, and 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 while doing this research, I think what really came about was the fact that. Pakistan also did well on, you know, on some indicators in these indexes relating to, you know, linking with security personnel and in, in relation to our response mechanism because we had already been hit with disasters. So when we were being examined and when we were being assessed, we were using that statutory mechanism. But then when we had a health emergency and when we had this crisis, we real, we had an entirely different mechanism that we used. Hmm. Um and I just, you know, I just really want to understand how how the ND, how do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile the NDMA with the NCOC? Okay, so a couple of things there. And one thing that I really want to mention is that if you remember early on, um, there was a lot of politicking around COVID response. Sindh is doing this, Punjab is doing the other, Prime Minister is saying that, but somebody is saying that. I'm sure, you know, you're 
your listeners will also recall this. Now, the interesting thing is that these coordination mechanisms, what they did was that they streamlined uh, the response in a way where even if politicians were going on TV and saying X, Y, Z, the response at the back end was completely streamlined, streamlined and harmonized, right? So let me so so at the NCC, NCC, you had the political leadership, the chief ministers and the prime minister and you know the federal ministers, while at the NCOC, you have the chief secretaries. So you have the response side, you know, you have the bureaucratic side uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the response. And I think that was a complementarity uh, that, uh, you know, the, the Ministry of Health or any other, you know, federal ministry would have struggled to, to, to gain because it's just a very, very difficult task to do. Pakistan is a big country and not all the countries that haven't had the same structure have managed it very well. Yeah. I mean, we can look at to, to our neighbors, uh, for instance. So to your question. Technically, who should be doing this? Yes, of course, it's a pandemic. I mean, it's a disease outbreak. It's, it's you know, uh, Ministry of Health is in the lead. However, this pandemic was so all-consuming that yeah. it impacted every single facet of Pakistani society, every single Absolutely. facet. Yeah. Hence why it is unnatural to think that the Ministry of Health can be in lead of that because, you know, there were questions related to industry, questions related to poverty, questions yeah. related to, you know, so many other things that uh, that is be much more beyond the purview. Yeah. Hence, why you needed a you know a, a, a structure that was beyond one ministry. Yeah. Um, so 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 I think you know technically yeah disease outbreak is our work. Lekin, the COVID nineteen pandemic was something very very different. And the NCOC grappled with all kind of issues, and that is I think that created the harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so just yeah. taking from there on, on, on you know, the effect and the impact that COVID-19 had on almost every facet of life, um, we can see that this, the negative impact of this pandemic was prof- more profound and particularly worse in areas where there's high poverty, where there's poor governance, and where there's a concentration of marginalized groups. And what is the ministry doing right now to tackle that? Right. So... Uh, by the way, you had another question in terms of NDMA and, and, yeah, and their yeah, setup. Yeah. So NDMA's main role in this became that NDMA became a vehicle for how we could uh, do emergency because a lot of this, a lot of response is related to how fast you can bring in equipment mm. and how fast you can bring in, um, you know, uh, not only diagnostics, but also, uh, 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 you know, treatments, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, so NDMA initially, because the, mecha- the procurement mechanisms in the government are slow, um, and they're very rigorous. Um, NDMA could step in because we invoked their, you know, act, uh, and 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 they could fast track that. Yeah. So there, so actually, their role was also very harmonized, hmm. right? Um, uh, so it, there's a division between the actual health response, which was carried out by the health authorities. Yeah. So you know, in in for instance, Islamabad is the Ministry of Health that did the contact tracing, that did you know run ran the hospitals, yeah. that you know the district health officer, etc. Uh, same thing in the provinces, while NDMA supplemented with procurement. So that's mm-hmm. like kind of the bifurcation that took place. NDMA itself could not, you know, deal with that. So the the outcome of this is that uh, now there is a uh, even more holistic view of of coordinating with with uh, with uh, when it comes to disasters uh, of this scale, mm-hmm. and and this NCOC created a model for how to do that. So that will be more streamlined in the future. Now, secondly, in terms of marginalized communities and, and how to reach that. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like COVID-19 is a disease for, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly an urban phenomenon. You see it in, in you know, uh, villages as well. Like, and it hits uh, places where a lot of people live very tightly together and, and where people can't 
you know, do social distancing because they got to work their daily wagers, etc. Yeah. So so very cognizant of that. And, and early on, what we tried to do was that we, uh, looking at models from other countries, was that we tried to set up test centers mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in, uh, in urban slums in certain areas in Karachi. I mean, obviously led by the provincial governments. Um, uh, same thing in, in, in Lahore, where we felt like there was, you know, hotspots. Um, so we try to bring the health service delivery at the doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, now, the second thing that took place beyond the health service delivery was the SAS cash handout, which is you know the biggest in Pakistan's history and the way that it was coordinated. I think it was a great success yeah. for, for, for the government. Um, uh, so and, and also the policies that were designed to mitigate for COVID-19, just called non-pharmaceutical interventions, get the you know, NPIs. Yeah. Uh, they were also very targeted to avoid economic damage on on the most marginalized communities. There is a reason why, you know, the prime minister was going around and saying, hey, a general lockdown in this country will, you know, lead to uh, an increased level of poverty, which will lead to increased level of undernutrition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, 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 so you know, th- with those three methods, we, we try to uh, safeguard our vulnerable community. Like in, uh, you know... Uh, Still, uh, I mean, they are still the ones that was hit the hardest. Uh, they're still the ones that, you know, had experienced the highest numbers of infections, even though we're not able to catch all of them. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, that's the nature of this disease. Um, speaking of the prime minister and how he, you know, opposed a full lockdown, what is your opinion now on um, ending all restrictions, all COVID-19 related restrictions, considering the fact that our population is still not vaccinated and COVID numbers are still there and COVID is still very real. Yeah, I mean, we haven't ended all restrictions. Masks are uh, still mandatory. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another question that if people, you know, are wearing these things or not, but but masks are still mandatory. Social yeah. distancing guidelines are still mandatory. Um, so, so, so the general uh, guidance to the public is still valid and we try to push that. However, you know, there is a... a uh, I would say that you know in the public now the 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 risk of COVID nineteen is uh, not seen as a as big of a threat yeah. as it was seen in March April you know uh, May June right yeah um, and that is very sad because obviously compliance levels fall very you know they fall uh, so what we're seeing at the moment is that the disease prevalence has decreased. Uh, however, as you probably read, read in the news as well, there is emergence of uh, variants, yeah. uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants, like so the you know the the virus variants, which are more transmissible. Uh, you know we got it uh, from travelers from the UK. Uh, we we you know put in severe restrictions there as well, and and you know the likelihood for that the disease might resurgence uh, oh. again is there and we're very you know aware of that and and what that would lead to would be a corresponding match of re-implementation of npis and i think that's it's difficult to get that message across that you know if the if the if the virus rises again there will be no other ways than you know than you know like doing all the restrictive measures which harm the economy which harm our children right like i mean we, we don't talk about that like in uh School closures, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if your, your listeners would know, but like, you know, 55 million kids, uh, young people and adolescents go to school or high school or university uh, every single day. That's like one fourth of the population, much higher than in in, in many high income countries. Yeah. And stopping that has a 
for especially the youngest children, it has a lifelong consequence. Um, so, 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 unfortunately, I, I think we're not, we're, we're not, you know, this is not the end of the disease, even though we're seeing that vaccines are going to come in. This is, this is going to surprise us in ways, and we're aware of that. Yeah. So, old COVID-19 restrictions are not lifted, and most likely they will start getting reimposed as the virus resurges. Okay. Okay, so um, that's, I think that's good to know, the fact that, you know, the ministry, the government is very cognizant of the fact that, you know, there will, there can be a resurgence. And I think, but again, I think the responsibility is also on the general population right now upon wearing masks and ensuring social distancing. And we've seen that, you know, people have also become very complacent. Um, and I think, you know, news of a vaccine is also something which has given everyone a lot of hope. But in terms of that, um, you know, I would just like to know more about the rollout plan for that, especially um, in relation to how this is going to go to those who are um, in rural areas where there is already very limited health infrastructure. Uh, what is the vaccination program and what is the vac what is the rollout program for that? So we're embarking on the most ambitious um, um, health outreach program, I think, in the country's history. Um, um, the, the idea is to vaccinate to achieve herd immunity, uh, which from our current understanding would be anywhere between 70, 80 million people. That's what, you know, Dr. Fassel and Asad Umar Saib have also been, I think, saying publicly. Um, I mean, that's our current understanding. It might change with time. Um, and, and currently what we know, what we have secured is roughly 45 to 50 million uh, vaccines um, and more will be secured with, with, with time. Um, the the large scale rollout to the general public. So currently at this moment, I'm not sure when this will be published, but at this moment, uh, frontline healthcare workers and healthcare workers can uh, easily uh, go get themselves vaccinated. So frontline healthcare workers can just walk into any vaccination center and they'll get the vaccine. And healthcare workers in general, and we're not only talking about doctors, there's nurses, paramedics, allied health professionals, etc., people working in clinics. Um, they can uh, uh, register themselves uh, and they will get uh, uh, an appointment and get vaccinated. Uh, in this month, we will start mass vaccination, mass vaccination of people above the age of 65. Uh, and then we will gradually go down the age, like 65, 60, 55, 50, et cetera, okay. et cetera. So, so we anticipate, so, so one of our biggest challenges that we foresee will be uh, a high degree of resistance within the public on getting the vaccine and that will be uh, you know some of the things that are we're you know we're working on a large-scale program to to mitigate for that yeah it will be a huge challenge for us uh, the logistical operations of rolling out the vaccine uh, it's complicated however we've done it before right yeah. I mean four times a year or five times a year we we run uh, the national polio campaign which vaccinates 40 to 50 million kids Every, I mean, in five days time or six days time, you know, these, you know, these massive vaccination campaigns. So, so, so our, our infrastructure also in the rural areas uh, is robust. Yeah. Um, the focus initially will be in the urban areas where you have a lot of population and where the risk is also the highest. Um, so, so it will be uh, a, a semi usage of our, uh, our existing health infrastructure. Then also on top of that, uh, we're working on some innovation with the private sector as well. Okay. So because, you know, the rollout will need to be, we're talking about like if we want to vaccinate like 60, 70 million people by the end of the year or even 50 million people by the end of the year, we're talking about like, you know, several hundred thousand doses a day that needs, okay, to, wow. that needs to go out. So yeah. we, we're, we're planned for that. 
Um, and this will be done through the EPI? Uh, EPI will be in charge. Okay. Um, and um, EPI is the front leading, but mm -hmm. it is, you know, obviously coordinated by NCOC, uh, led by Ministry of Health, uh, with EPI, um, and and EPI is fairly capable to do this. Okay. Uh, we have the you know logistical infrastructure, um, and then obviously it will be supported by um, you know our partners and um, and also hopefully the private sector once we get going. So generally, in terms of health security, um, there is a response. Like the idea is that you should be able to prevent the out an outbreak of a communicable disease. Then you should be able to detect cases of that communicable disease, report them. And then also respond to this. So you're basically looking at your entire state machinery when you're looking at health security. But in terms of, you know, detecting viruses, in terms of detecting diseases and reporting them, um, how do you think Pakistan has done so far? And what is the role of the NIH in this? And um, now that we're looking at, you know, the restructuring of the NIH, what do you think, what do you foresee for that? And could you just explain that to us in... Right. So, so let's talk about NIH restructure first. Uh, it was an ordinance that got passed a month and a half ago, I think yeah. now, um, and hopefully will turn into an act. Um, basically, that is a conclusion of a longstanding work of uh, making the NIH fit for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, making sure that you know our NIH is robust enough to handle these things um, um, and also have, you know, the in-house capabilities. Now, NIH has played a tremendous role in COVID-19, uh, the fight against COVID-19. You know, the lab guys, uh, you know, they've been working day and night. Uh, Pakistan was one of the first countries, low and middle income countries that had cap capability of diagnosing uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, <laughs> um, you know, um, and, and NIH uh, helped labs all across Pakistan uh, to be able to have this capability of actually running PCR tests. I mean, now there are more than 140 or 150 labs and, and they're supported by you know, NIH or have been supported by NIH and we're running quality controls, et cetera. So, so on the lab side, I mean, NIH has done a tremendous amount of work. Then on the contact tracing side, um, there is an entire unit in NIH that looks at the academic side of things, like how contact tracing is supposed to be. And, and they have you know, done numerous trainings like in provinces in districts going down training these rapid response teams etc so even though it's not been kind of visible uh, out there like as newsworthy thing but at the back end NIH has played a critical kind of role uh, an enabler the restructure of NIH uh, the I mean the most important thing in that and there are many important things in that but the most important thing in that in this context would be the creation of CDC Pakistan the Center for Disease Control Pakistan uh, which will be modeled after, you know, the most uh, advanced uh, CDCs across the world. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, we want to build a, a hub uh, within the NIH, within the CDC, uh, that are, you know, not only Pakistan leading, but world leading experts um, on, on these issues. So, so the restructuring process is well underway. Uh, a board of governors, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an autonomous body uh, with very capable board of uh, uh, governors that, that has been uh, established and and the restructure process will then roll out in you know the next few weeks and and, and months time so so the minister dr Faisal sultan is actively working on this and you have you know um, um, a lot of people involved in this that's okay. one of our main objectives um, in the reform agenda so so high hopes for nih and and you know i we think that uh, if there is something good that is going to come out from this is these kind of reforms and particularly NIH, uh, that will, I think, receive a tremendous boost from 
having a lot of people that have been involved in dealing with a pandemic that can go straight in and, and build our long-term capabilities. Okay. Um, to come back to something that we discussed earlier, which was that, you know, Pakistan was perhaps the only country to not have a national ministry of health at one point in time. Right now, we're also one of the very few countries in the world which doesn't have a right to health um, in the constitution. And how do you think that affects our programs? And uh, because we see that a lot of them then are not sustainable or because, you know, because of the lack of a constitutional right to health, many of these are then abandoned midway. What is your opinion on that? And generally, could you explain this to us in, in, in relation to vertical programs and how those work and how the lack of a right to health affects these vertical programs? Yeah, I would say that it's sad that um, the right to health is not enshrined in Pakistan's constitution. I know that there has been efforts. However, I mean, with the current political polarization, it's kind of hard to see anything passing anytime soon, right? Um, there has been, um, I would say, the politicization of health issues, I think, has been important. And I know, you know, that might sound bad, but the fact that you had a, uh, you know, a government running on the agenda that we will improve health is remarkable in Pakistan's history. Um, so, so, so there is an increased focus. Now, the interesting thing is, if that doesn't really translate into actual investment into infrastructure and actual investment into systems, governance, and then, you know, the programs that you're mentioning. Unfortunately, if you take almost any disease, it will show the negative, it will show a bad trend in Pakistan, oh. right? Infectious disease, I mean, we're, the, we're like, you know, the second fastest growing HIV epidemics in, 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 in Asia is in Pakistan, right? Pakistan has the highest burden per capita on hepatitis C, right? You know, we're we're not able to grapple with tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so so there are just so many um, issues and a lot of these vertical programs and particularly AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, I mean, they've been driven by um, strong support from partners, donor countries, donor, you know, organizations. Um, and the uh, ownership from the government has been with limited funding and that has to switch. And And, and and, and, you know, the Prime Minister's Health Task Force, uh, which is led by uh, uh, Dr. Michelle Ron Berkey, um, and, uh, you know, has had this as, you know, as a core front that investments into health needs to increase. And there are some critical things that we need to hit. Hmm. So there is a realization now that we cannot only rely on donor funds to do health. That has to be our own money. Sehat yeah. Sahulat program, I mean, the health insurance card for, for especially chronic disease. You know, that is being expanded by government's own money. You know, government is actually spending money on this. Um, a lot of these vertical programs uh, now are getting more sustainable funding. So the PC wants the, you know, the development projects are in, in place. So, so a lot of these things are in priority. And I think, I think you know, even if right to health was enshrined uh, in the constitution, I'm not necessarily sure it would have produced a different result. But mm -hmm. I think that it, it is morally important that the country has it. Um, uh, uh, but the actual investment comes from uh, from the fact that there is prioritization. You Absolutely. can't you can't expect you know you can't expect that these indicators that we're talking about stunting, yeah. uh, uh, undernutrition, uh, you know, chronic disease, yeah. uh, non chronic disease, sorry, uh, and and communicable disease, etc. That any of these things will get better if you don't invest in, in into the systems. Uh, so. Um, uh, 
Ministry of Health is is planning along those verticals that you mentioned. So on on, on communicable disease, it's very clear. We know what the asks oh. are. Um, on other types of health issues, particularly on nutrition, there is a a a, a lot of focus on that. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister has has made is this flagship issue. Uh, we're developing a the largest uh, PC one in social sectors in, oh. in Pakistan's history, three hundred and twenty billion rupees, uh, which is now in its final stages. And that will start rolling out, which will target stunting and wasting among children um, in nursing, etc. So th- there are a lot of things that are coming up. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that I think can hamper this is that political uncertainty in pa- is Pakistan is is a reality and it's 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 a fact. Um, and if you know if you have a lot of political uncertainty and if you have you know changing ministers, changing governments, etc. over over long periods, I think that will continue to hammer. Our, our health indicators so so that is that is a, that is a major i think uh, 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 yeah can be a major barrier um, so taking from your point on um on on all on these issues and then on, on especially on health indicators and then discussing universal health coverage as something that pakistan is aspiring to achieve my only concern and a question to you is that um considering the fact that we don't have the basic health infrastructure right now and considering that our health service you know the the fact that we have a very decentralized service delivery system but one that is riddled with issues how do you think just how do you think universal health coverage will affect that how will it change any of that is it just something that we're going to be will we just be ticking a box that okay we have universal health coverage here without can we do it without the actual adequate infrastructure for it um I think, um, or I know, that this is not just a academic exercise. Okay. Uh, the work on universal health coverage, and it's, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up, um, has been um, really important in Pakistan's case, where Pakistan has, over the past few years, um, taken a front seat in identifying what is it that we can do with, you know, certain, with certain amount of money that would produce the best health outcomes. That has been a a you know multi-year long effort, and the conclusion to that is actually very tangible. So the tangible in this sense becomes what are the type of services that we need to deliver at the primary healthcare level? Mm-hmm. What are the services that we need to deliver at the secondary level, at the church level, at the community level, uh, uh, and at the household level, like with mm-hmm. you know LHWs um, and community workers, etc. We have the framework. Now that's a huge thing. Uh, and the implementation of the framework, it's not that expensive. So the health infrastructure, like the brick and mortar, mm-hmm. uh, is actually, we're, we're not too bad with that. I mean, you know, if you go to Punjab, they have thousands of BHUs, yeah. basic health units, right? So the brick and mortar, yes, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a, but, but the, the more important thing is the software, you know, like what, what goes in, like what type of services are, are we giving? For instance, if you get a sore throat, uh, everybody goes to PIMS, yeah. which is a tertiary healthcare system. Technically, you should go to your, you know, local. So, so a lot of that uh, within the universal health coverage model uh, will be sorted out, and and in Islamabad it will be rolled out. I mean, the we have, you know, we have the money for it, we have the system ready, yeah. uh, and inshallah, over the next year or two years, when you start seeing the rollout, this will end up becoming the model, uh, which. Provinces are already excited about this because they yeah. already want to pilot it in, 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 in districts. So so I don't think it will just be a, you know, a, a tick a and we're done there. Yeah. No, this will be, uh, 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 you know, the, the slow-paced evolution that we require 
in uh, in expanding uh, health services to people, and it will cost money. That will automatically entail that we need to spend a higher proportion of you know our GDP on on healthcare issues, which I hope that our decision makers are comfortable with. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely good to know, and that's very encouraging to hear as well. Because um, I mean, you know, right now, as you mentioned, that a lot of people when they have a sore throat will go straight to pins. But a reason for that is also because your BHUs are right now not equipped to handle even a sore throat. Because when you go there, they're usually empty. Your workforce um, distribution is tainted, and at the moment, you know, as as long, I mean, you know, pursuant to the studies that we've conducted, we've seen that you know, with many basic, with many of these uh, areas. you don't even have the workforce and you don't have skilled technicians you don't even have people in the laboratories your lady health workers are severely stressed um so there are these issues and i really mm-hmm. hope that through this universal health coverage program we can address some of these and um i'm hoping that you know with with an improved service delivery program with improved health infrastructure we will be able we'll be better equipped to deal with a health emergency in the future as well yeah i i, I 100% agree with you and and you know If you get a sore throat, you won't go to the BHU. You will go to the private, you know, private uh, uh, service provider because that's like what seventy percent of Pakistanis do. But I think that's the biggest problem right now. The fact that you know, so we have an entirely separate unit right now, a private unit where which is not really regulated. So even when you're looking at you know, I mean, when we were studying data surveillance and uh, integrating that data, the biggest I, I, whenever we spoke to anyone, even in the ministry outside, their biggest complaint was the fact that it's so difficult. Everybody is using every 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 hospital is using a different software. It's so difficult to integrate all that data together to bring it together, simply because you have so many different systems going on in the same country. Yeah, but you know we so so the so the so you're absolutely right. Like I mean, you will data harmony is is I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's going to be incredibly hard for a country with almost a quarter of a billion people. So let's just get that straight. However, COVID nineteen showed that things are possible. you know we have a central repository for where we know where you know all the test results that comes in we know who's positive and who's negative and that kind of informs the response from the central to the provincial to the district and uc level mm-hmm. so so it is possible it just requires a a lot of work and a lot of resources um um but you know i would say that the private sector will end up still playing a, a significant role it's the regulation of the private sector that will be important Islamabad recently constituted the Islamabad Health Regulatory Authority. I mean, it's still very, very in its infancy. Um, uh, uh, but, but the point here is that we need to regulate the quality at the private sector, and then we need to provide quality services uh, at the at the public uh, 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 sector. And and one thing that I would like to say is that, as I mentioned earlier, so so universal health coverage is vertical, like cross cutting, right? But sorry, it's horizontal. It's cross cutting. But the vertical programs, you know, the, the strengthening of the healthcare system that happens through vertical programs are also important. Mm-hmm. So technically, we need to look at everything that is going on in into a single umbrella. So, for instance, the, the nutrition program that I was talking about, a large chunk of the nutrition program goes to strengthen uh, service delivery at the household level. So we're talking about like strengthening lady healthcare workers. We're talking about Um, you know, providing uh, 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 nutrition services that can either at the primary level or at the at the household level. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think for for people, and, and you know, I know that there is not a lot of information about this outside. Um, 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 however, and and we need to get better at communicating what we're actually you know doing. But 
but there is a, a collective effort that is going on. Uh, uh, but the sticking point will end up being show us the resources, like prioritize this or else they won't. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. I think health is definitely something that has been ignored for far too long, too many years now. And I think COVID-19 has sort of really brought that point home that you know you need to give this more priority because it really affects every aspect of your life. And um, but you know, smart on that note, just just wanted to say it's, it's really reassuring and it's really good to know that we have people like you working with the ministry inside, you know, on the front lines. We usually hear of people from Pakistan going abroad, and it's very rare that we hear of somebody you know who studied abroad, lived abroad, coming back and working in Pakistan. So that's great to know, and um, you know, I just wanted to thank you for taking out your time and for talking to us about these issues. Um, there's so much to discuss, and honestly, I feel like we've only like you know reached the this is the tip of the iceberg, and I really hope that we can have you here more often to discuss all these issues because, as you said, you know, the ministry is doing a lot of work; people just don't know about it. And um, in terms of communication, I would love to be able to you know I think we're in a position where we can help in that way, and for that. Um, Feel free to come back here and we can discuss as many other issues as, you know, they come. And um, yes, on that note, I'd just like to say thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well who've uh, been a part of this. And if there's anything that you want to say in the end. No, thank you so much, Jamal. And I really appreciate that you're actually, you know, taking the time and effort to discuss topics like this. I think this is, you know, what kind of, obviously, you know, your listeners will be very educated people that would be, you know, well-informed. Um, however, you know we we have a job to do to to get the get the message across and 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 I and I have to say again, I mean I think the work that you've done, uh, I mean and, uh, the work little that I've seen with the with the with the, with the legal framework on on health security for for Pakistan and the report that you produced, um, this is groundbreaking stuff um, and congratulations for that. I'm really excited to read the 200 page report. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you. Um, take care.